So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You know, some people have plans for um, how they think their life is going to unfold. I'm going to, you know, wait until I have this much money saved up in the bank, and then I'm going to marry at this particular time, and then we're going to wait this many years, and we're going to have kids, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And all of those kinds of plans, I mean, we know that they don't necessarily unfold the way that you expect them to, but for Mary and Joseph, they really didn't unfold the way that they would have planned things out for themselves. Uh, there were definitely some unexpected events that interrupted them, and they had to choose how they were going to respond to these things. And as we go through the Christmas story, um, last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and we're just kind of going through chronologically, so we're mixing Matthew and Luke and kind of bouncing back and forth so that we can follow the story as it unfolds. Today we're going to see prophecies and preparation. We're going to see announcements that angels make to both Mary and Joseph. We're going to see different prophecies that are made by individuals in the Christmas story. All the things that are leading up to the birth of Christ. And um, it's not the way that any particular one gospel writer writes the story. Each of the, each of the gospel writers write with their own intentions, their own impressions that they want to give. So you know, Matthew is, is writing for a Jewish audience and he's presenting Jesus as the, the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. And Luke is writing for a broader audience that's not just Jewish. And so he's including different details in the way that he tells the story. And John, the same thing. Mark is giving us more of a, a kind of the basics and he just skips over the entire Christmas story. And so each writer has their own way of doing it. We're kind of combining the two main ones, Matthew and Luke, and saying, what are all the different things that go into the, the days leading up to Jesus' birth? And, and what do we learn about it so that we can kind of maybe get a historical understanding of how this event unfolded? But also at the same time, the purpose is let's, let's hear all the things that are said about Jesus. All the things that these writers wanted to point out about who he is. Look at all the responses of the individuals involved in the story. And so hopefully that's what we're able to see as we go through these, these passages in this way. This morning kind of breaks out into the passage that you see there in Luke, verses uh, 26 to 56 of chapter 1. There's two sections to that. And so I'm just going to read each section and then talk about it for a while. So let's start with the first part, Luke 1, 26 to 38, which is where Gabriel visits Mary. Follow along as I read this, and then we'll talk about this section for a few minutes. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a woman whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, there's a number of important things in that little section of the story. And so um, we don't have maybe the time to dig as deep as I would love to on any one of them. But we're just going to kind of walk through the things that we notice in the story this morning. The first is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The, the phrasing that's used here is that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. But we're specifically told that Mary is a virgin and she has this question, how will this be since I am a virgin? What's the meaning of that word? Well, here in the New Testament, when we have that word, it means exactly what you would expect it to mean. It's the same way we would use the word today. It means that she has not been with a man yet. Now that passage is quoting from the Old Testament, and it's talking about a prophecy that's given in Isaiah. Now, if you're reading through Isaiah and you come across this passage, the word that's used in Isaiah is maiden. It can have the same meaning as what we think of with the word virgin today, but it doesn't have to. And in Isaiah's story, there is a, a near-term fulfillment of that prophecy. So I don't think people were necessarily reading Isaiah and expecting that there was going to someday be a Messiah who would, would fulfill this prophecy. But when we get to the New Testament, the writers very clearly tell us that what happens in the conception and birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah had said. And the imagery that's used here as to how this is going to happen is that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's an interesting word. It's really only used three times in the New Testament. And the other times that it's used, it, it, it's kind of clearly um, giving a little different idea than what we might expect. One of those examples would be Luke chapter 9. This is the transfiguration. And it says, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Well, that's just signifying this very um, tangible presence of God that is enveloping them there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The word is picking up a very common image from the Old Testament. Let me read for you a few verses and you'll get the sense of what this is talking about. In Exodus chapter 13, when Israel is coming out of Egypt, we are told that they are led by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Well, that cloud, that's God's presence. That's the overshadowing of the cloud there. A couple chapters later, Exodus 19, God says to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So the people there are going to see that Moses is enveloped in this cloud of God's presence. When you get down to Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's an interesting one. When you think about it, what's happening? 
the cloud is overshadowing the tabernacle, and it says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I kind of think this is the imagery that we should have in mind when we picture what's happening with Mary, because the glory of the Lord in human form, Jesus, is filling Mary's womb as she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Same kind of imagery later when Solomon's temple is dedicated. Second Chronicles 5, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so when we come to the New Testament, Mary is told the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. You'll be enveloped with the presence of God and the glory of the Lord fills Mary's womb in the person of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And ultimately, the thing we need to recognize coming out of this is that brings about the conception of Christ. And it's the, the doctrine that we call the virgin birth. Now, we call it the virgin birth. We really should call it the virgin conception because that's the point. But there's a theological importance here. The way that God has ordered the world... He has made it so that husbands and fathers are representatives of their families. Adam was the original representative of the entire human race. And when Adam sinned, that sin nature gets passed down. The, the fancy term for it is federally, by representative, to every family afterward. But with Mary, God interrupts the process and instead of having a human father who will be the representative that the sin nature is going to come through, God intervenes and says, the Holy Spirit will conceive this child in Mary. And so we have a virgin conception, which then means we can have a sinless child who does not have the sin nature that is passed down federally from Adam. And this is really important because we have now a sinless savior, a sinless substitute who will stand in our place, a sinless sacrifice, an unblemished lamb who can be offered for the sins of his people. And so this detail that we get in the Christmas story is setting us up for something that's really important for us to know about who Jesus is. What's Mary's response? Well, of course, the initial response, anytime there's a visit from a heavenly being, is fear. But the angel quickly says, do not be afraid. And we see by the end that Mary's response is, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So her response is faith and obedience. She believes what she is said, what she's told, and she says, I'll do it. I'll obey. Faith and obedience. And that sets a model for us of how we should respond to the word of God. The other thing to note about this part of the story is that the angel says, Gabriel says to her, that this child will take the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That throne of David, if you remember the promise that was given in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So 
the expectation is, all through the Old Testament, that, that at some point there's going to be a king who's going to reign in Israel who will be even greater than David and will set this people of God up with a kingdom that will never end. So by the time you get to the New Testament, the expectation is if, if someone actually reads their Bible and believes it, and there were some in Israel who did that, not all, but some, if they believed that, then they were waiting for a king, the coming Messiah, who would return God's people to their former glory, return Israel to its former glory and beyond, and a kingdom that would last forever. And this forever reign, Gabriel says, will be over the house of Jacob. So this will be Israel's true king. But at the same time, as we read the New Testament, we realize that the house of Jacob gets redefined. Israel is not just those who are physically descended from Abraham. Israel will come to include all those who are of faith, those who believe in the Messiah, Jesus. And so this forever reign over the house of Jacob is actually a reign over all of God's people. In other words, over the church. And this kingdom will never end. Now, when did the kingdom begin? Or has it not yet begun? Well, as you read the Gospels, it's really hard to avoid what the Gospel writers are saying because over and over they tell us that Jesus came announcing the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And when Jesus dies, it's not that the kingdom somehow failed to materialize. It's that God intended this kingdom to come in a different way than anyone was expecting. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus wins this great victory that the king is supposed to win over God's enemies. And then he ascends into heaven. And the Bible tells us that he takes the throne at the right hand of God the Father, where he is now ruling and reigning, the Bible says, until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death, and then he hands the kingdom over to the Father. That doesn't mean that he'll stop reigning. It just means now he's put everything in order, and he will continue to reign with the Father for all of eternity. So the kingdom has already begun because the king has taken the throne. He is ruling and reigning, which means he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. And he will do that until the last enemy is defeated. What's the last enemy? It's death. When is death finally defeated? When it's ultimately reversed. In the final resurrection. And then he hands the kingdom over to the Father. So exactly what Gabriel is promising here about the kingdom is what Jesus came to do, though it was very different than what anyone expected. Well, let's move on to the next section here in Luke chapter 1. And here we see that Mary visits Elizabeth. So follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 39. In those days, so in the days when Gabriel came to visit her, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, 
that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We have in this passage here three different responses to what's going on. The first one is the response of John. John the Baptist is the baby in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth and Mary are cousins, so John the Baptist and Jesus are second cousins. I'm not sure how the conceived by the Holy Spirit thing works in there, if it's like, you know, second cousin once removed, I'm not sure. But they're related, nonetheless. But the interesting thing that happens here is that the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth says, you know, someone might read the first description of it and say, well, babies just do that. Elizabeth says in inspired scripture, that the baby leaped for joy. This was not just something that happened. This was a response. This is a divinely inspired response of the person who is in the womb of Elizabeth. And so it's confirmation of the identity of Jesus. But the thing that fascinates me that I think we really need to point out and recover and, and kind of pay attention to is that John is a person. John has what you could call a spiritual, emotional, and physical response. It's spiritual. He's recognizing the Messiah. It's emotional. It's for joy. And it's physical. He leaps. This is a whole person response to the arrival of Jesus when he hears the voice of Mary. And it is kind of a side note here. It's not the point of the passage, but don't miss the fact that this is a real person in the womb. Life in the womb is a real person. And that real person deserves all the same respect and protection as any other life. We live in a, a state and a nation that has wicked laws regarding abortion. And it's wicked men who put those laws in place, regardless of what they say. And we need to be, as the church, recognizing that every life in the womb is a real person that deserves the same value and worth and protection and respect as any other person. And so... We need to be supporting, for instance, when the opportunity comes up, a bill of equal protection 
that would be a law that would protect life in the womb the same as it would protect any other life. There was one of those that was supposed to come forward this last year in Ohio, and the representative who was to bring it backed out at the last minute. There are currently 18 bills of protection in various states that are in the works. Don't know how far each of them will get, but when the opportunity comes, we as God's people should support that. Maybe there are some of you sitting here this morning that would say, I want to take that on and do what I can personally to facilitate that. And if that's the case, there are ways for you to get involved in doing that. But don't miss the point as we skim over this in the Christmas story, that this baby in the womb is a real person and that matters. The second response that we see here is the response of Elizabeth. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She's anointed for a prophetic statement. She talks about the blessedness of Mary as Mary has the privilege of carrying Jesus. And she talks about Mary's blessedness because Mary has believed what the angel said would happen. Now, it's not, um, we, we have churches that take this too far. So for example, the Roman Catholic Church takes what is said here about Mary and elevates Mary to an inappropriate level. I can remember when I was younger, um, if I wanted to listen to Christian music on the radio, there was only a couple of options. One of them was 1460 AM in New York where I grew up, and it was a very broadly Christian station, and different groups would kind of pay for an hour of broadcasting or whatever. And late at night, it was like 11 o'clock at night or something, there was a, a Catholic prayer hour. And so I would turn on the radio, think, you know, looking for the Christian music, and I would hear the Catholic prayers, and you would hear you know, this chanting, um, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And it would just get, would get repeated over and over. So the, the Catholic Church has taken some of what Elizabeth says here in response and used it to elevate Mary in a very inappropriate way. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary is co-redemptrix, that she and Jesus participate together in redeeming mankind, that she's co-mediatrix, that she and Jesus together are mediators for God's people before the Father. Scripture doesn't teach that. That's an inappropriate elevation of what is said here about Mary. At the same time, don't miss the fact that Mary is called blessed. That's a reality. It's a truth that we shouldn't just kind of skim over. And Elizabeth too is blessed because of hosting Mary and Jesus. She rejoices that she is given that privilege herself. But of course, the main response that we see in this section is the response of Mary. And Mary, I, I wanna give you kind of like five different things about Mary's response here. This, is, this response of Mary is a song. We, sometimes refer to it as the Magnificat. It's this song poem response that she gives. The first thing is that Mary magnifies God as savior. So Mary needed a savior. Do you, do you see that? Mary's not sinless. She needed a savior. She calls him God my savior. This is a counterbalance to those who would over-elevate Mary. Mary is blessed, but she's a sinner who is in need of a savior at the same time. Jesus is the only sinless one. He's the only one who has the virgin birth, the virgin conception. 
So Jesus is the sinless one. Mary is one who needs a savior. The second thing to note in Mary's response here is she extols God's mercy and his great deeds to those who fear him. God's mercy is one of the ways that God likes to be known. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, what did Moses um, hear in response? God said, I'll show you my glory. And he told him who he was, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the very first thing God says about himself to Moses when Moses wants to see God's glory is that he is merciful. And, and Mary here extols God's mercy. And the whole history of God's people is a testimony to this. And so she recounts, He's, he who has mighty has done great things for me, but then it goes on, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's been seen throughout Israel's history. And the work of Christ, what he came to do, is the ultimate demonstration of God's mercy. The third thing to see in Mary's response here is God's strength in defeating his enemies. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and it goes on from there. Put yourself in the sandals, shoes, of somebody who's in Jesus' day. Let's say you are one of those faithful people in Israel who reads the scriptures and believes them. And so you hear prophecies about a coming Messiah and you, you say, I believe that God is going to do this. But as you're talking to your friends, look around. It sure doesn't seem like God's winning. It sure doesn't seem like he's accomplishing his plan. I mean, after all, here we are under the thumb of the Romans. We don't even have control of our own land. The ark and the presence of God are not in the temple. The, 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 the people are living in sin. How, I mean, could things really get much worse? And yet it's at that moment that God was about to act in fulfillment by bringing Jesus. And what do we do today? We look around and we see our culture, and we see the decline, and we see how things are getting worse and worse according to the way that we see the world, and we say, I don't know that God's ever going to, to win. Is he really working out his plan? It sure seems like things are getting worse and worse. And yet, here you have Mary singing a song of praise in belief that God is accomplishing what he said he will do. That's an example that we should take to heart. Do we believe that God will do what he says he will do? The fourth thing to see out of Mary's prayer is that God's blessing is unexpected. Not only is it going to be suffering and then victory for Jesus, but it's upside down. He knocks down the proud and the mighty. He fills the hungry. He sends away the rich because God's economy is different than ours. And what I want you to just remember out of that is this. God is not blind to the injustice and the suffering in the world. There will come a day when all of that will be set to rights. And finally, notice in this song, Mary says that God has helped Israel Verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. Like we saw last week in the genealogy, this is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, 
You'll be a blessing to all nations. The promise to David, a royal son. The, the, the end of the exile, the separation from God is ended. And that's why that particular line in the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, always stands out to me. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. In the arrival of Jesus, all of these promises that God had given through the years are being fulfilled. Well, the last passage for us to look at this morning is over in Matthew. So flip over to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 25 to see that an angel visits Joseph. Now, last week we looked at the first 17 verses in Matthew to see the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us as part of the Christmas story. Then we flipped over to Luke to see the, 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 you know, Gabriel visiting Mary and Mary visiting Elizabeth. And now we're back in Matthew to see the next part of the story, which is an angel visiting Joseph. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. A few things for us to see in this section of the story, beginning with who Joseph is. Joseph is described as a just man. He's righteous. In other words, he's obedient to God's law. He's concerned to make sure that he's obeying what God has said. And since, to all appearances, Mary has been disobedient, Joseph wants to obey God's law, but he also wants to be compassionate to Mary. So it says that he's unwilling to put her to shame, that doesn't mean that he won't go through with the divorce. He won't be following what God's law says, but he's not concerned for his own reputation. He's not concerned to distance himself from her publicly. If you want contrast there, think about what the Pharisees do. They're often trying to set themselves up separately from the people to distinguish themselves. We are the righteous ones, not like those sinners. Joseph has no desire here to distance himself from Mary publicly. He's going to go through with divorce because that's what the law allows for, but he's going to do it quietly because his concern is not to distance himself from her and to shame her publicly so as to make himself look good. Then we have the angel's pronouncement. Joseph is a son of David. That tells us that he's part of the royal line. Remember what we saw in the genealogy from Jesus last week. He's a son of David. That's pointing out that royal identity. 
And the angel's pronouncement here confirms what we just saw in Luke about the virgin conception of Jesus. It's fulfillment of Isaiah. And he says, you'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is just the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus share the same name. It's just a different version of it. And he will be the savior, the deliverer of the sins of the people. So Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the royal one, but different from messianic expectations, different from what people were looking for. And Matthew clearly here interprets the virgin birth of Jesus as being a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Even if Isaiah's prophecy didn't, on the surface, seem to be saying that, Matthew makes it clear that God intended those words of Isaiah to be a prophecy that would be fulfilled by the virgin conception of Jesus. Notice also, before we finish with this section, Joseph's response. It's almost identical to Mary's response. He responds with faith and obedience. It says, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. Exactly what he was told to do is what he did. He believed the word that was spoken to him, and he obeyed it. Well, as we consider what that story is telling us, there's two parts to it that I want to point out this morning. The first is simply, what does it tell us about Jesus? We saw, we've seen this morning, the virgin birth of Jesus tells us that he's the sinless savior. He's the unblemished sacrifice. The substitute who can take our place and deliver us from our sins. We've also seen that he's the royal son of David. He takes the throne of David. He is the king who is ruling and reigning now. We've seen that he is the means by which Jesus, by which God the Father defeats his enemies. Jesus brings about the great victory of God on behalf of his people. And we've seen that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. All of those things are wrapped into this Christmas story. So as we read it, don't miss what Matthew and Luke are telling you about who Jesus is, because that sets up the rest of the story. The other thing I want you to see this morning, or at least to consider, is what do the responses that we've seen from the various characters in the story teach us about what our response should be? How should we respond to Jesus? Mary responds with faith and obedience. She believes the word and she obeys it. John leaps in recognition of Jesus. Elizabeth rejoices in the blessing that God has brought. Mary, again, praises God for the deliverance that he's achieving for his people. And Joseph, like Mary, responds in faith and obedience. He believes the word and he obeys it. So is that your response to Jesus? 
Do you hear the word that is spoken about him and believe it and obey it? Do you rejoice like John? Do you celebrate like Elizabeth? Do you praise like Mary? How do you respond to Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the Christmas story. There's so much just kind of embedded in that story that we could spend so much time thinking about and meditating on that tells us who you are and the wonder of what happens at Christmas. But this morning, I pray that you would help us to see who you are and help us to consider our response. Teach us to be people who respond in faith and obedience like both Mary and Joseph did. Teach us to be people who respond with joy, with rejoicing, like John and Elizabeth and Mary. This is what it means to follow you. Help us as we meditate on the Christmas story to discover together what it means to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.